Welcome to a new episode of our podcast, Climate Change Behind in Numbers. My name is Elisa Narminio, and I'm here today with Sasha Ramirez-Hugh. We are delighted to be joined by Sébastien Trier, who is the head of think tank IDRI, president of the Scientific and Technical Committee of the French Facility for Global Environment and lead faculty member of the Earth System Governments Network. Warm welcome to the show, Sébastien. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you today. So in our podcast, we ask our guests to choose a key number about climate change and to unpack it for us. Uh, Sebastian, you've been thinking hard and long about this, I, I believe, and you came up with a number that you wanted to discuss today with us. So the number that I think is very important is the fact that uh, if we look at uh, total greenhouse gases emissions uh, currently, a quarter between 23 and 25 percent of these emissions are attributed to the land sector, which means agriculture, forestry and land use. And that, I think, makes it one of the key elements of uh, uh, why don't we focus more on that sector? What can we do on that sector? And I think it's very uh, important to, to unpack that. Um, I can just add the fact that just ahead of uh, the uh, 20, 2009 um, COP15 in Copenhagen, uh, there was a kind of a, a movement by northern countries to say, oh, but there is a lot of untapped uh, emissions reduction potential in the land sector, in particular in southern countries. And that was one of the key moments that blocked the international negotiations uh, because uh, southern countries had the impression that what they could do in their land sector, agriculture, food and, and forestry, would be a kind of a compens an offset mechanism for northern countries not doing the job on transportation and industries because these are supposed to be more costly or more complicated mitigation measures uh, in northern industries and transportation systems. So that's why I wanted to unpack it. This uh, uh, quarter of all total emissions in the agri-food sector uh, is sometimes presented as a low-hanging fruit. I'm not sure. I'm happy to discuss. That's very interesting. Thank you very much. Could you maybe tell us a bit more uh, about what this number entails. So what what are those green gas emissions in the land sector? Where, where do they come from? What do they refer to? So I, I don't want to be too technical, but it's very important to understand that there are different types of uh, uh, of issues and different types of gases, actually, because when you enter the field of the land sector, you suddenly leave the only issue of uh, um, uh, carbon dioxide to enter the conversation about methane, about nitrous oxides, etc., etc. So let me be technical for, for a very small uh, moment just to, to let you understand what's, what's at stake. The first element that is critical uh, is about carbon. Then I mean probably emissions of uh, carbon dioxide that can be emitted when we change the use of, of land. And for instance, and in particular deforestation, when a forest is converted to uh, a pasture land or to agricultural land, then uh, the, the, a lot of the carbon is actually not so much in the trees, but in the soils of forests can be emitted to the atmosphere. And that's a key uh, emission deforestation. And even in agricultural soils, depending on the type of practices that you have, you can either store more carbon in the soil or uh, or release it into the atmosphere. So that's one of the key uh, elements. It's the carbon in the soils, in particular the soils of forests, that is at stake. And therefore, we need to find ways to fight deforestation. Another element is about methane. Uh, there are uh, Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And you have two sources from the land sector. One is uh, that uh, when ruminants like cows, camels uh, and sheep 
when they uh, ruminate, they also eructate methane. And, uh, and so that's completely um, uh, embedded in uh, their life, in their digestion, in their metabolism. But uh, if we have a lot of industrial uh, uh, livestock production, then we emit a lot of methane. And that's a key question on which we could try and work. And another source of methane is the rice paddies. Uh, when you uh, uh, inundate uh, a rice field for the sake of uh, having rice grow, a part of the biomass that is underwater fermentates and, and emits methane. So this is where there are solutions that could be uh, explored around uh, uh, having rice production without inundating the, the field. The last thing that I wanted to mention is that you also have a lot of uh, emissions that are linked to uh, the fertilizers, the nitrogen fertilizers, fertilization, be they chemical or organic manure uh, fertilization of, of uh, agriculture. Then uh, there is there are two elements to be taken on, uh, into account. Uh, nitrous oxides emitted when you apply that into the atmosphere, which is an air pollutant, uh, very dangerous for human health, but also a, a powerful greenhouse gas. And we need also to take into account that uh, a big part of the uh, there are also indirect emissions of the agricultural sector because chemical nitrogen fertilizers are produced with a lot of gas. So if we can reduce the use of uh, nitrogen fertilizer, in particular chemical nitrogen fertilizer, then we can re also reduce direct and indirect uh, uh, impact in terms of greenhouse gases emissions. Could you give us an idea, however, of how far greenhouse gas emissions could be reduced by transitioning to more sustainable models and more nature positive solutions? And I assume there are several um, models for that and benchmarks. So interestingly, uh, when you have a look at scenarios from the IPCC or at scenarios at national scale that we have uh, analyzed, for instance, in France uh, or at the European scale to just take these uh, countries as example, could reduce by between a third and 50% uh, the greenhouse gas emissions in that sector, which is far from being uh, something that could be uh, carbon neutrality. This is where I believe uh, we need to really be cautious uh, because there are many other sectors who believe that the part of their uh, emission reductions that they can't do, the residual uh, emissions from transportation, from industry, could be at some point offset, compensated by the fact that we would, uh, these sectors would pay agricultural uh, sector or farmers to store more carbon in their soils uh, or in their forest plantation. I believe this is not what the IPCC is saying. It is so complicated to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the agri-food and land use sector that we need to keep the potential to store carbon in agricultural soils as the, the way and means to compensate for the emission of the same sector of agriculture. So this is very important. We have a potential to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but it's very complicated in the agri-food sector. We must be also very cautious, as you said, about the, uh, the fact that it's one of the key elements of the agri-food system is to produce food and nutrition security. So uh, we definitely need to look at a multi-benefits uh, perspective. Uh, and in that regard, very important also to not have an illusion about the amount of soil carbon sequestration in agriculture that could be used for compensating the efforts that other sectors are not, are not doing. If we want to be net zero in every sector, the soil carbon sequestration in agriculture will be used by the agricultural sector itself.
So thank you very much for, for going into more detail about this. Um, it's very interesting to hear some of the complexities, and that's something I would be interested to hear a bit more about. So from what you tell us, these numbers have been known for many years, right? The share of greenhouse gas emissions coming from the agri-food sector being around a fourth, and that could also bring potentially a third of the solution that you mentioned in the introduction. But when we hear you speak to those numbers, there are very complex realities lying behind it where... For many years, the idea was floated that it would be a low-hanging fruit and a quick-fix solution. Can you maybe explain in more detail what the specific complexities are, especially where we look at southern countries and the transitions that, that are required there? Telling about the Copenhagen conference in 2009, and there was this very known uh, McKinsey curve called uh, mitigation abatement that we're saying, if we look at the cost of uh, reducing one ton of uh, greenhouse gas emissions of CO2 equivalent uh, in uh, transportation in northern countries, it's extremely costly. While sometimes if you look at what it would uh, cost to reduce emissions from the agri-food sector in the south, it seems it's negative costs. And negative costs mean that probably you would actually have co-benefits for other purposes. And so that was, to some extent, saying it's not just a low-hanging fruit, but it's where we need to put uh, to put the focus. Why is it then not happening? These types of curves where you compare marginal ab abatement costs are extremely useful to trigger questions, but of course they are blind to a lot of uh, local realities. First and foremost, I would say food systems transformation, the transformation of the agricultural sector, particularly in, in uh, southern countries, has been discussed already for many years and not majoritarily for the purpose of greenhouse gases mitigation, but for the issue that we need that system to function better to deliver food and nutrition security for the country itself. So if we take the example of Ethiopia, has a very large, I think it's even the world's uh, most numerous uh, livestock sector. Uh, the, the, the amount of cows in, in Ethiopia is, is extremely massive. And at the same time, Ethiopia is facing a lot of food security challenges, lots of smallholder pastoralists who have a very small amount of cows who are not accessing food security because they are too poor. But in their context, the cow that they have is the essential resilience capital and asset that enables them to go through the, through the years. And so if you uh, ask this sector to say, well, you have a lot of methane because you have you are the, the, the country where you have most cows per inhabitant. So let's reduce the number of cows. You actually end, end up fragilizing the access to food and nutrition security in terms of resilience of this access to food that is extremely problematic. And so... When I say food and nutrition security, it's talking about both producing enough food and also ensuring enough access to food by uh, inhabitants of countries. And very often they are, they are smallholder farmers. And I could add on that that one of the reasons why for, for decades already the uh, ministries of agricultural development in sub-Saharan African countries have been trying to find the right path for transforming the food system is that they want to have both more production, more resilience, more access to food for smallholder farmers, ensuring that there are enough jobs in the food, in the agricultural sector, but also in the first segments of the food processing industries that could be the trigger of an industrialization pathways for those countries. And on top of that, you need that to, to be done in a way that is securing the resource base of uh, agriculture that is about biodiversity, local ecosystems and landscape, water and soil quality. And so you see uh, the transformation of the food system is not just about carbon. And if you want to optimize that, then it's a very complicated 
issue to find the right policy path to make it not just a carbon optimized system, but something that has multiple co-benefits, among which carbon is just one and not necessarily the first one to be taken into account. Thank you very much for this. I was quite interested in hearing about the lantern tenure example as well that you mentioned previously. Yes, of course. So very often when we think of what needs to be done for the uh, land use sector, the first idea that comes to mind is we need to stop deforestation. And to some extent, very often it's seen as a forest issue. We need to protect forests. And that's right. That's very important. But to protect forests, you also need to have a look at uh, the uh, agricultural developed pattern of the countries where the drivers of deforestation are very often the uh, development and the expansion of the agricultural land. And so you can't completely look at stopping deforestation from a pure prohibition point of view, where you would say, I don't accept any more products that products of deforestation. But on top of that, you need to look also at uh, how the agricultural sector is also able to cope with the idea that they should not infringe on, on forests. In many uh, sub-Saharan African countries, but also in the Amazon basin, you have a land tenure or ac the access to land or the use of land is uh, given not through the type of uh, ownership or ownership rights that we have now in, in Western Europe, for instance, but through the idea that you have common access with commons rules, if we oversee that, we might end up uh, thinking that we have an easy solution to stop deforestation, while actually the problem is uh, that we need to really look at uh, making the best of the existing land tenure governance system. By saying so, I'm not advocating for privatization of land and putting all uh, the land governance and land tenure systems uh, aligned with the uh, private ownership system that we have now in Western countries, but rather to uh, look at the potential of common systems or traditional systems of land tenure and land governance to maybe be more able to protect soils and to find uh, innovative solutions to halt uh, deforestation. For instance, uh, what has produced uh, deforestation in the Amazon basin is that uh, you had initially some farmers, smallholders, who were trying to access staple crops to, to try and find food for their own survival and they, they were deforesting. But then what happens is that once they have used the land for two or three years of harvest, the soil, the tropical soil is degraded. And then the only thing that grows is grassland. And then come the big latifundist uh, landowners who uh, claim the land and put on that land extensive livestock systems. And then not directly soybeans that are put uh, and that are the trigger of deforestation. I'm just trying to, uh, to tell that story to just show you that we need to really be cautious about the uh, interplay of different players, the succession of events that is about deforestation and land use change, if we want to really design the type of policy that would be able to halt those processes. And this needs to be both about conservation policies to conserve uh, the integrity of uh, the territories of indigenous people and local communities uh, that should not be exploited by the agricultural sector. And on the other hand, we need also to find solutions for farmers in a way that they can find uh, jobs uh, and income and access to food on the agricultural land. Thank you, Sebastian. It's very interesting to see those multiple dimensions play and the interplay of stakeholders, as you rightly mentioned. In the face of all this complexity, in your opinion, what is the way forward? Do you have examples of scalable solutions that take into account the specific needs of local communities while also allowing to protect nature and still feeding people nutritious food? 
to be completely honest, there are competing solutions and the debate is quite tensed currently because I believe it's quite polarized. On one hand, you would have the land sparing solution or it could be named also sustainable intensification. In that case, the idea is to say, we need to have a very uh, good uh, conservation policies and then to uh, produce a lot on the rest of the agricultural land uh, to feed um, to feed a growing population and then on those agricultural lands reduce uh, marginally greenhouse gases emissions that type of uh, land sparing solution is not the one that I would favor. And so let me explain why I don't want the audience to be directly convinced because uh, this is really a hard debate. But let me say, let me tell my, my arguments. In that strategy, you would really uh, be able to uh, fight the climate impact of deforestation and preserve biodiversity in forests. But then you would be would have very uh, negative impacts of just increasing uh, production on existing agricultural land without paying a, a sufficient attention to biodiversity water quality. That's to me something that is not sustainable uh, because biodiversity cannot be considered just as an external impact of agriculture. It's also a production factor for agriculture. And so I believe the resilience and viability over the long run of such a, a system where you would uh, protect carbon and biodiversity in forests and then uh, just optimize the agricultural land on carbon, that would not function. On the other hand, uh, I'm more in favor of a solution that could be called land sharing. This is exemplified by agroecological solution. One of the key examples that is often used is something that happens particularly in Central America, where uh, you have uh, very productive ecosystems that are not monocropping, but that are very complex with different uh, layers of vegetal production between uh, grassland, cereals, bushes and trees on the same plot. And a lot of uh, synergies, ecological synergies, where some of the uh, trees are making shade that protect the cereals from too much sun. And at the same time, there are symbioses between these elements. So these very complex, very uh, heterogeneous agricultural landscapes are producing much more biodiversity than monocropping areas. And that could be a very interesting example. Probably they would necessitate more jobs, uh, more uh, active population in agriculture. And that's, a, that's an issue. Uh, but we see, nevertheless, that as a very uh, interesting example to have uh, multiple benefits on the same plot uh, in the Sahel region, uh, where you have a lot of risk of uh, soil degradation and desertification. Uh, this model of agroecology, agroforestry is extremely uh, attractive for even the ministries of agriculture, uh, who in general seek mostly productivity and competitiveness, because they see the vulnerability of agricultural development if it's only uh, aiming at uh, increasing the uh, the amount of food. But of course, I need to say that the solution that I'm talking about, if we want to protect the forest as they are, uh, the forest, the turf land or the savannas as they are, and at the same time have very complex systems, uh, agroecological or agroforestry systems on the rest of the agricultural land, it's not sure that we can do that if we need to produce twice as much in 2050 as we produced around the year 2000. In order to be sure that we can have multi -benefits, multiple benefits in the agricultural land, we need also to look at demand-side uh, solutions in the food system. What I mean by that is that we have also industrialized a lot uh, livestock production and uh, nearly two-thirds of vegetal production is not used to feed humans, it's used to feed animals. 
So as soon as we reduce a little bit the amount of uh, or the share of animal proteins in our diets, we reduce the need to produce uh, uh, also vegetal production to feed uh, these animals. And, and, and I, when I talk about animal proteins in our diets, I mean both uh, meat, but also uh, eggs and milk. So this is for the moment quite rational. If you look at what nutritionists are recommending, we should rebalance the share of vegetal and have more vegetal proteins uh, than, than uh, animal proteins. So if we change in Western diets, but also in the diets of Chinese people or in the future diets of uh, those who are coming to uh, large income uh, capacities in southern countries, in order not to get to the excess of consumption of animal products in our diets that we have now in the West, then we gain a lot of room for maneuver. We don't need to produce so much vegetable products. And so we can afford to look for very complex agricultural systems that would be able to produce in a, in a co-benefit manner, biodiversity, water quality, food security, jobs, and climate protection. Thank you very much, Sebastian. It has been very interesting to hear from you about the impact of the agri-food land sector on climate change and those current debates that are very complex indeed on scenarios for sustainable transitions. It's interesting for us to grasp those complexities that hide behind what initially seemed to be an easy solution with low-hanging fruits. So thank you very much for showing us a way forward um, for a just transition. My pleasure.